appearing to left and to right. Fabulous. Good morning, y'all. You're all well. We're all good. Do you want to turn to Luke chapter 20? Just the latest passage we have reached in our usual series. Luke chapter 20. We're going to start at verse 9 in just a couple of minutes. Just to help set the context, before I just read this passage, Jesus is telling a parable in this. It's always helpful to remember where we've been coming from, what's just been happening, just to understand why Jesus is telling this parable. And he's doing it immediately on the back of his authority, Jesus' authority, having been questioned by the religious and kind of society leaders at the time, the religious heavies, as I know David described them last week, rightly so. It's a really good word for it, the religious heavies. And Jesus is teaching in the temple itself. Remember, he's turned up in his father's temple and he's found, it's like eBay. People are here to make money out of the temple and he's driven them out. And then it says he he then taught there daily. (laughs) He removed what was spoiling it and he moved in. I love it. That's an echo of the gospel of our hearts, isn't it, as well? And he's moved in and he's taught there daily. And while he's there doing so, teaching the people, these religious heavies, these elite They ask, on whose authority are you teaching like this? Now, they're speaking to the actual maker. (laughs) If you just realise quite what's going on, this is Jesus, this is God himself in the flesh who's come here to reconcile us back to him. And they're going, who do you think you are? It's like Pinocchio, you know the story of Pinocchio, the little wooden boy who becomes Geppetto's son. And it's like Pinocchio talking to Geppetto, like who do you think you are trying to tell me what to do? And Geppetto's, um, I'm your maker. <laughs> Who do you think you are questioning me like that? And that's exactly what's happening here. They're questioning their creator. Who do you think you are? The arrogance and the entitlement is really quite something, isn't it? But Jesus' authority, when we understand what we're talking about here, and I'll, I'll deal with it a bit, bit more later on as well. When we talk about Jesus' authority, we're talking about it, it dictates what he is owed because of who he is. It's not just a question of his legal power. It's not just um, a question of his, of his ability to command things. It's also about his rights and what is duty rightly owed to him as well. God's authority doesn't just mean that he can command to us. He can command us at us. It also means that he can demand from us as well because of who he is. That's what gives him that ultimate position of authority. As our maker, he has every right to expect our heartfelt worship. Full stop. That's not him being some narcissist. A narcissist is someone who, who has unreasonab- an unreasonably high sense of their own importance. <laughs> God's sense of his importance is not unreasonably high. He is the ultimate. Full stop. But because he is the ultimate, greatest, good and perfect being, that demands rightful honour and praise from us, his creatures. Right? Does that make sense? But God in his love and in his grace, he won't force that from us. He won't treat us as puppets. Coming back to Pinocchio, he's like a, he's like a puppet without strings. And he's free to love his father Geppetto back or not, isn't he? And in the same way for us, we are free to follow and to love God because of who he is or to walk our own path away from him. He frees us to do that. He expects it from us, asks of it from us because of who he is. But he won't make us do it. We are free to love him back because he is loving. And so this question of Jesus' authority is not just 
about his teachings. This is about him. This is about his status, and this is about his rights as God himself, which actually the religious elite, they're, picking, they're getting a sniff of something here, and they get, they're feeling threatened by it. They're the ones they think are in the position of power in this place, and they're feeling threatened. It's like, maybe we're not, and we want to keep our fingers on this position of authority that they think they have. And so, in being questioned, as David dealt with his, Jesus' immediate answer last week, Jesus then continues to tell a parable in the hope that they'll receive it as a wake-up call. This parable is a big warning to them. Now, Jesus' parables, they pack a punch. His, his parables are stories with a, a personalised message, which either comes as a shocking twist in the tale sometimes, or even just some blunt truths, some home truths that are packed into it. But he is a God who is incredibly generous and gracious, but he doesn't muck around either because of who he is. He's God. So Jesus tells this story. We're going to read from verse 9, and then we're just going to creep a tiny bit into the next section, as, depending on how your Bible's broken it down. From verse 9 to verse 19, it says this, And he, Jesus, began to tell the people, this is in the temple, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he led it out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he, the owner, sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him uh, shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And then it's always interesting to read the next verse, just says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Oof, pretty heavy, isn't it? Jesus loves to use parables. They're stories, like I say, with a message for anyone who wants to truly listen. And there are, there are nearly, it's about 46, I think, it's nearly 50 of these parables that Jesus teaches in the Gospels. The Gospels are simply Jesus's, the biographies of Jesus, written by four men, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's, it, the, the names are the authors, the people who wrote them. And they're the four biographies of Jesus from slightly different angles. And the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels, simply because they're very similar in content and style and substance. And then if, if you get to read them, you, you discover that John is actually quite different and has a lot of brand new, unique stories that he includes in his biography of Jesus. But the, the other three, the Synoptic, the common, the ones that share most stories, all three of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all feature this parable, which means we really need to listen to it. Because if you consider that 
Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. That's why it's packed full of more prophecies. As the, as the prophet said, and as that was written hundreds of years ago, now remember this, he's talking to a crowd that know what he's talking about. So he's writing to the Jews about Jesus. And Mark is writing primarily to a Roman audience about Jesus. And Luke is writing primarily to a Greek audience about Jesus. But they all deem this parable worthy of being included. So it's not just a lesson to the Jews at the time. There's definitely something here for all of us to learn. As with other parts of Scripture, if it's in Scripture, it's there for a reason and it's for us. Okay? (laughs) Don't mishear me. But the fact that these three writers writing to vastly different audiences all think, I'm going to include that parable and I'm going to leave that one out for the sake of time. They're all including this one. There's got to be something here that isn't just a lesson to the Jews for us to look at and go, okay, how, does it, how, how can we relate that to today? There's a lesson here for you and for me immediately. So let's have a look. We're just going to work our way th- through the story. Um, what Jesus is doing here He's, he's, he's basically spelling out Israel's historical response to God's rightful position of authority and what he's done to their response to him. Um, let's just look, we're just going to look at the context, the setting, the vineyard, very briefly, understand what's happening there. And then we'll look at the owner of the vineyard, we'll look at the tenants in the vineyard, we'll look at the servants that the owner sends, but then also the son. And as we do so, we'll understand a bit more of what the religious leaders are immediately getting when he tells this story. Because this picture language is very relevant to them. For example, the context, the setting, the vineyard. This is a direct reference to Israel. Throughout the Bible, the authors, God uses vines and vineyards to depict his people. And there's, there's loads of it throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. For example, just for the sake of time, for example, Psalm 80, you read that, it's very obvious that Israel has been described as a vine in that psalm. It's quite blatant. There's one helpful example. There's plenty of others. But also in the New Testament, in John, John's Gospel, chapter 15, later on we find that the church, us, his global people, Jesus describes us literally as branches on a vine attached to him receiving our sustenance from him. It describes his people, again, as a vine. And so Jesus saying, there was his vineyard. Straight away, these religious heavies are going, he's talking about Israel. There's no question. They know what he's talking about. So then he talks about, there's an owner of this vineyard, and there are some tenants who are running it, farming it. Now, this owner, who owns Israel? God himself. Again, he's talking about the owner of the vineyard, the owner of Israel. These religious heavies are going, well, he's talking about God straight away. There's no question. Now, he does say here that the vineyard owner has gone away to another country for business. Now, I need to understand that Jesus saying that doesn't mean, that, for example, that God created and chose Israel and then rubbed his hands of them, of his immediate involvement with them and walked away because he had something better to do somewhere else. That's, that's not what... Jesus is saying, this is allegory in terms of not every tiny detail here is a a direct echo of another part of the real story behind it. You can overthink it, all the finer details. It's allegory. For example, George Orwell, who read Animal Farm at school in English Lit? Yeah. Who liked it? No, who hated it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, On the surface, 
George Orwell's Animal Farm is about a bunch of farmyard animals who rebel against their farmer. That's the story. If you've seen the animated film, that, that's, that's the basic story. Underneath it all, though, it's an allegory. It's a message about George Orwell's um, great concerns with Russian politics at the time. That's what he's doing. It's an allegory, but the broad strokes of that story convey an important message that he's trying to tell, but the finer details can be overthought and overstrained, and we can end up missing the point sometimes as well. So we need to not get so bogged down in the, in the details that we, we, we can't see the wood for the trees. Does that make sense? And so here, Jesus simply means that God was trusting his people, notably the religious leaders, to be tenants, to, to look after his vineyard, to spiritually steward his nation under his ownership. But guess what happens? It all goes horribly wrong. Because it was customary in those days, again, this is something the, the audience would have known at the time, it was customary for owners of such land, they'd create a vineyard, they'd plant the vineyard up, and then if they did need to go away on business... They would rent it out to tenants to run the vineyard for them. And while the, the, um, the owner's away, he'd either send servants, like we see in the story here, or he'd return himself and expect half the produce in return as their rent. That's simply how, how, the, how it worked. So in this story, the owner is simply sending his servants to collect the tenant's rent to pay for the privilege of running this farm and getting some extra profit out of it as they do so. The owner of the land is just expecting from the tenants what he is rightly owed. Yeah? So when we, con when we connect this with Jesus' answering a question about his authority, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. When we connect it directly to Jesus being questioned that, in, about that, in verse 2, right back at the beginning, when Jesus is asked, on what authority are you teaching? That word authority in the Greek, it carries a flavor not just of his ability to act, like I was saying earlier, but also the right to be in that position and to act in that manner. So Jesus has the right to not only command and teach, but that comes from who he is and where he sits, and it comes from a place where he is rightly, therefore, expecting something owed from us because of who he is. And what he, he as God, rightly expects from us is praise and worship worked out through a life of loving obedience. Because he's God. And so the tenants here, and therefore Israel's religious community, they were abusing God's vineyard that they'd been given to steward and to look after for his honour. Because by their choices and by their behaviour, they are refusing to honour him as the one to whom that honour actually belongs. They're treating this vineyard terribly as if it's their own. And that's the problem. In um, West Palm Beach in Florida, it's a really popular filming location for movies and for TV shows. It's even today, uh, Smokey and the Bandit was filmed there. Yeah, yeah I love that film. Uh, one of the Fast and Furious films and so on, they're all filmed there. The stuff is still filmed there these days. In the 1980s, there was a family living in a home there. And they had a knock on the door and they... And there was a film crew outside, we're going to be filming here. Can we film in your front yard? It's perfect for what we're after. They said, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. They did a deal. And uh, they were filming this TV series in the 80s, BL Striker. I, I never saw it. They knew that cars were going to be crashed 
outside, on their front yard. They knew, they knew and they, the filmmakers promised we'll tidy up afterwards, we'll mop up, don't worry. So they said, yeah, that's fine, it's be quite fun, something to tell our friends. While the front garden was being blown up, the filmmakers got a frantic phone call from New York. Why are you blowing up my front garden? Because it turned out that was the owner of the home who had been tipped off. The people living in the house were only tenants, and they had no right to allow the property to be used in this way. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here. Throughout history, not just at this current time in, the, in this passage in 30-ish AD Jerusalem, but over the centuries prior, this same problem had been happening over and over again. God's people, in particular those who were responsible for leading the worship and ensuring that God is given what he's rightfully owed, that was their responsibility, they were operating outside of their authority and abusing what God had gifted them to look after. And so, as a result, God would send his prophets, his messengers, to the people and ask for what he is rightfully owed, praise and worship, honour and obedience. And so the servants in this story, where it says the owner therefore sent his servants to get the rent, they're referring to, it's referring to the prophets in the Old Testament. I love a, uh, just a, almost a throw-aside line from Stephen in Acts chapter 7, just before he's about to be killed himself. Um, Stephen, one of Jesus' followers, says, which of the prophets did your, talking to the religious elite again, which of, your prof, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> Ouch. Go on, tell me one they didn't persecute. That's what happened over and over again. And there are some horrendous, horrendous stories, both in the Bible and in the historical books around the Bible as well, that back all this up. In the other version of this parable in Matthew chapter 21, I think it is, it says explicitly they killed the servants. They didn't just beat them and chuck them out, they killed them as well. For example, Ahab and Jezebel are evil, evil king and queen of Israel. Many hundreds of years earlier, you can read about it in 1 Kings they killed, it says explicitly, they killed many of God's prophets. And some had to hide, um, keep away just to be safe. But then you've got Jeremiah, who wrote a very significant, large um, book of prophecy in the Old Testament. Um, he was beaten, he was put in stocks, and other historical um, records tell us he was possibly stoned to death for who he was in Egypt, in North Africa. And you've got Isaiah, wrote another very significant um, prophetic book in the Bible, um, he was pursued by Manasseh and it's likely he was he hid in a tree and he was sawn in two. They, they, they caught him in the tree and they sawed him in two in the tree. So when you read in Hebrews 11, some, you know, some of God's people were sawn in half. You remember that, that famous verse? I used to love that verse as a kid. Weird kid. But it's probably referring to the prophet Isaiah. That's probably who it's talking about. And you've got one more, Zechariah. He was stoned to death in the temple courtyard where Jesus is standing telling this story right then. So for these religious people, this audience, they know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says the servants were sent to demand what the owner is rightly owed and they are beaten and killed. They know he's talking about the prophets. Throughout history, people did not want to hear God's heartfelt desire for worship and what he is rightfully owed. And so they beat his messages, the prophets, they killed so many of them, and the audience in Jesus' time knew exactly what he was talking about. But all along, their hearts must have been pricking. 
Surely. Surely. Because then Jesus goes, uh, verse 13 uh, says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. God sent his own son, Jesus himself, as proven elsewhere in Scripture. Now, Jesus is not here saying that the Father sending the Son is his plan D. Well, I've sent my prophets numerous times and that didn't work out and I'll give my son a go. That's that's not what Jesus is saying. The rest of Scripture is very clear. Jesus coming as the divine solution for our sinful state, if you like, was always the plan from the moment we rebelled and turned away. You go right back to the beginning, the third chapter of the Bible, you see right then that the plan was always there. The plan was always there. To come not just as another messenger, but as a reconciler between, in the story, between the owner and the tenants, but in real life as the bridge of healing between holy God and lowly man. That's who Jesus is, and that's why he came. And what did the people do? Verse 15, and they threw him out the vineyard and killed him. Jesus is referring to exactly what will happen in the next few days after him saying this. God himself, Jesus, in, God himself in the flesh, he will be taken by those he's come to rescue, to warn back, uh, to warn and to welcome back into his perfect loving design. They would reject him. They would put him on trial. <laughs> the audacity. And they would decide that their threatened position of power and entitlement would be safer if they got rid of him. And so they'll kill him. not realising, of course, that you can't keep an eternal God down. (laughs) And he will rise again just three days later and he will birth a new multicultural worldwide vineyard that sings even more loudly of God's amazing, beautiful, unifying love. The church, amen. That's what was going to happen within just a few weeks of Jesus saying this in the temple. What the religious leaders had assumed as their birthright was going to be taken and given to new tenants, us, the church. Praise God. This future, even wider, even richer community that God had always planned, but these people have squandered and therefore missed out on being a part of. So Jesus is, is, is going out of his way to ensure that these religious leaders get to hear the warning in this. He doesn't want them to miss out. He doesn't want them to to step aside and to rebel to a point where they they miss out on eternity with him. He wants them to be a part of his family. His heart is for every single human being on this planet. But he he gives us the choice. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a moment where the prophet Nathan uses a parable to catch someone's heart. King David... um, has committed this awful sin of stealing another man's wife and committing murder to try and get away with it. This is heinous crime. So the prophet Nathan is sent by God to tell him a story, to tell him a parable about a rich man stealing a poor man's sheep. Sounds innocuous, doesn't it? But as he's telling this story about this rich man who's got plenty of sheep, ends up stealing this poor little lamb from this poor man, David, on hearing this story, gets indignant and he, and he gets furious. And he's like, that is, that is wrong, that is evil. That man, that rich man in that story needs to be put to death for his crime. 
It's caught David's heart. So then Nathan goes, ha ha. <laughs> he rightfully points out that that story is about David and what he's done. And the point is, he's told this parable, one that punches David in the heart, is told in hope of repentance, which is thankfully what happens. David repents of his sin and he turns back to God and he's a changed man as a result. He responds the way God wanted him to. Now here, Jesus is doing the same. He's telling a parable. He wants people to turn back to him. He doesn't want to just give them the boot. He wants to give them another opportunity. But these listeners, they get indignant about the murderous behavior of these tenants. They, oh, this is outrageous. And about, and about the seemingly, seemingly over um, kind of extreme reaction from the owner. So he's going to take those tenants and kill them and give the vineyard to someone else. So in verse 16, they're going, oh, this is terrible. Verse 16, um, when they heard this, they said, surely not. He's, caught, he's got their hearts. But then Jesus, it says in verse 17, he looks them in the eye. He looks directly at them. He eyeballs them. Like, I, want, I want to see the white of your eyes as you hear this. And he's effectively, he says, I'm talking about me and you. God and man. This is you. That's what he's saying. And how does he do that? What words does he use? Well, he quotes from another psalm. Psalm 118. It's, it doesn't say who the author is, but it's, it's, again, it's likely to be King David himself. And Jesus simply says, was it not written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, he's saying the beloved son in this story that the tenants kill, and therefore the actual son of God that humanity was about to kill, he proved to be the foundation stone of a new building, a new kingdom, one that will not include those who reject him. It's as simple as that. And that is such a foundational truth to life, eternal, that God prompted the psalmist to pen those words 3,000 years ago. That Jesus then repeated himself here a thousand years later. And then once all those events have actually come to pass in the next few week, over the next few weeks, Peter, in Acts chapter 4, will repeat these words yet again. When again he's talking to the religious heavies, Peter says this, just a few weeks after Jesus tells his tale, Peter says, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, see it's happened by then, whom God raised from the dead, that has happened by then. By him, this man is standing before you well, the person who's been healed, that they're getting angry about. And he continues, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. You see, there's a reason why this parable is told in three of the Gospels. And there's a reason why these exact words about a cornerstone appears three times like this Russian doll. You've got Peter quoting Jesus, and you've got Jesus quoting the psalmist, King David probably. And that psalmist was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen those words 3,000 years ago. It's all wrapped up like this Russian doll. Keep beating this, this truth home. That Jesus is the stone that was rejected, but he's become the cornerstone of their salvation available in no one else. So the simple message for all of us, every single one of us, whoever we are, Jewish or not, ancient or modern, 
If you want to be part of this eternal kingdom, it's the son himself, Jesus, the heir to the vineyard, who is the foundation undergirding everything. He's the cornerstone that dictates the kingdom's very shape and position and strength. All built around him. Jesus is the doorway to eternal life and fruitfulness. Jesus is the gate to this beautiful vineyard, if you like, where we get to flourish forever. You get to finally discover what it means to be fully human, living in a relationship unhindered by sin with God himself because of Jesus. Jesus is the gateway to that vineyard where we get to bear fruit to give back to God for his glory and for his honor. And so when I'm being complacent in life, when I'm not fully involving him in my everyday life, when I'm just going about my everyday, just barely acknowledging his existence, perhaps sometimes, I know I do that, I'm failing to bring him the fruit that he deserves, right? Or when I'm feeling listless, when life feels a bit empty of colour, it's generally it's because I'm failing to realise the fruit-bearing opportunities of this amazing vineyard that I get to be a part of 24-7, whether I feel like it or not, whether I notice it or not. I'm in this vineyard now. I'm in the church. I'm in this body of people bearing fruit for him. I get opportunities every day. It's full of opportunities to bear fruit for him, but I can miss them because I'm not thinking about it. I'm not looking. I'm not seeking. Or... Have you ever said no to God? I know I have. I've done it. But this parable helps us realize the implications and the weight of that one simple word, doesn't it? God's plans and God's promises will never be sideswiped. Like these religious elite at the time. We too, we can miss out. If, if, if we don't see God's promises come to pass in our lives, in, in their own season, there's a timing for them, if, if we don't see that otherwise happen, it's because of the choices we made, not because of him just changing his mind. And so for us, for the church today, we just need to remember this. We are, we are tenants. <laughs> We're not owners. This isn't our church. It's his church, Right? And so we need to treat it with all due respect and all the reverence that it deserves and that he deserves. To treat the church insolently, to treat the church as something that we approach to solely benefit from or to criticize. Sometimes we can have, it's okay to critique, there's a place for that. We want to make sure where we're not dropping the ball on things, like I'm talking about now really. But there can be, sometimes we can have a critical spirit and we can criticise the church. We need to be very careful what we're doing there. Because for all our faults, Jesus loves the church to death, <laughs> literally. And so we need to appreciate her beauty like he does, right? And we need to steward this vineyard well, knowing that it's not ours, it's his in the first place. And any fruit we do bear belongs to him anyway. He, praise the Lord, he has, as the story says, he's given the vineyard 
to more than just Israel now, and we get to be a part of that. Praise God. And so his desire all along was for their example and their message to lead the way in opening up the vineyard, the kingdom, to the rest of the world, to you and me. And he's done that. But they squandered their opportunity to be an equal part of it too. So let us also not be in danger of squandering his trust in us to steward well the mission he's given us. Amen? Working together in unity. Bearing the fruit of worship and obedience for him and inviting others to not miss out as well. Let me pray for us.